God intends for his supremacy in world evangelization to be known by ordaining that it be accomplished, the goals of world evangelization be accomplished only through prayer. Now, I have a text I want to use to make that plain in a fresh way for me because I didn't see it until about uh, five weeks ago. But before I read you the text, which is from Revelation, I want to take a few texts just to make that point that I just said, namely the supremacy of God is intended to be highlighted through prayer. Just a few texts to make that plain, lest uh, you take that as my word rather than the word of Scripture. So if you want to look at these with me, I'm just going to run through about uh, four or five texts with you very quickly to show you why I think that's the case. The first one is in John 14, verse 13. John 14, 13, Jesus says, Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So there it is. I have ordained that you ask the Father for things in my name. Why? In order that the Father might be glorified and he be glorified in the Son because you ask him for things in my name. But it's in asking him for things that he gets glory. The giver gets the glory. One of the most important texts in my philosophy of ministry is 1 Peter 4:11, where it says, Let him who serves serve in the strength that God supplies, that in everything God may get the glory. The giver gets the glory. Prayer makes plain who the giver is and who the glory should go to. So there's text number one. Number two, Psalm 50. Starting in verse 12, If I were hungry, God says, I would not tell you. The world and all that is in it is mine. Do I eat the blood of uh, the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Pay your vows to the Most High. And here's the key verse. And call upon me. In other words, if I were hungry, I wouldn't come to you to get. You're desperate. You come to me to get. Verse 15. Call upon me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you will glorify me. So calling upon the Lord in the day of trouble makes plain where the resources of deliverance are. And when the resources come and we are delivered, he gets the glory because we called upon him and the deliverance flowed from him and the giver gets the glory. So call upon me. Exploit my resources. Use prayer because I get glory in answer to prayer. That's text number two. Number three, Ezekiel chapter 36. This is a new covenant promise here in Ezekiel 36, starting at verse 33. Now, I won't read all of this paragraph, but I need to read part of it so that you hear the amazing verse 37 in its context. Verse 33 is a promise. Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places shall be rebuilt. 
So it's a promise. I'm going to bring men and women to inhabit the waste cities and rebuild them. Where does prayer fit in? Verse 37. Thus says the Lord God. Now I'm reading from the RSV. I don't know what your version says here. The Hebrew is a passive. I will, I will be sought. I will be asked. Here's the way the RSV renders it. Thus says the Lord God, this also, referring to the promise he's just made, this also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them, to increase their men like a flock, like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feast, so that the waste cities be filled. In other words, I've just made the promise in verse 33, they will be filled, they will be inhabited, I will do it, and therefore I will be prayed to, to that end. Why? The end of verse 38, then they will know that I am the Lord. There is something about prayer ordained in God's sovereignty to bring about His purposes. There's something about prayer that keeps us aware that He's the Lord. If God were to do all of His purposes without involving us in asking Him to do them, something would go awry in our worship and in our reliance and in our trust and in our awareness that He's the Lord. And you don't need, to, your people don't need to understand that in order to be fired up for prayer. They do need to know that God has ordained that only through prayer will he accomplish his sovereign purposes. One more, well, two more. And you know them by heart. You don't even need to look them up. When you pray, say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now, you know the grammatical construction there, don't you? I lived two-thirds of my life thinking that was acclamation and praise. It's not. It's a request. Let your name be hallowed. You are asking God. Every, every sentence of the Lord's Prayer is a request. L let your name be hallowed. Cause your name to be hallowed. Hallowed, sanctified, set apart as infinitely worthy and precious. Let your name run and be known. Now, think of this. God has sworn that that's going to happen. This earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. And yet he says to you, pray that it happen. He will not do it without prayer. He will see to it, I will let myself be prayed for this promise that I have made. I will see to it that the church prays, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. You think the kingdom's coming? The kingdom's coming. A lot of people reason, well, if the kingdom's coming, you don't need to ask for it to come. Bad logic. It's not biblical. It may be human. It isn't biblical. It isn't godly. Let the Bible teach you how to pray. And what we pray for are things that are most assuredly promised. The kingdom is coming. Therefore, pray that it come. Thy will be done on earth the way the angels do it in heaven. Is that going to happen? You bet it's going to happen. There will be a new heaven and a new earth someday, and only the will of God done in the energy of angelic beings will be done. Pray that it happen. 
God has ordained that these absolutely sure events be brought to pass through your agency. And they won't happen without your agency. If you choose not to be a part of the agency of their cause, of their coming to pass, you just be left behind. And he will gather another people to himself who will pray the kingdom into reality. He will do it through prayer. One last text before we look at the main text of the morning. The one I referred to last night, Matthew 9, 38. Pray the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. And I am just boggled in my mind when I think of that prayer because, or that command, because the Lord of the harvest knows the harvest. He knows how many workers he needs. I don't know how many workers he needs. Why does the owner of the farm come to a little farmhand who lives out in a hut on the side, knocks on my door and says, would you please tell me to send more workers into my harvest? What is going on here? You know how many workers you need. Just do what you know needs to be done. And he says, no, no, it's not the way I'm going to do it. I won't hallow my name unless you pray. I won't send my kingdom unless you pray. I won't do my will unless you pray. And I won't send out workers into my harvest unless you pray. You tell me to send out laborers and I'll send out laborers. Now, you may not have set up the universe that way as a sovereign God, but God did. And we just have to get on board with the way God planned it. And he planned to do it by prayer. And therefore, it ought to ripple through this seminary and through all the churches constantly calling for the kingdom to come, for the mission to be completed, for his will to be done, and for his name to be hallowed, and for workers to be sent. Because he has said, not in vain, you tell me to do it and I'll do it. That's an awesome thing to me. Prayer absolutely boggles my mind. Now the text I want to take you to that is new and fresh for me is in Revelation 8. And this one I would like you to turn to and read with me or look at with me as I read it. And I'll just give you off my front burner why I am excited to, to lead my people in 1994 to pray through Operation World and to pray for big, big, big prayers that God is moving in the world today. And he is moving. I believe, I cannot prove this, but I believe the publication of Operation World in 1986, we just got the new version this year, unleashed the opening of the USSR. I think that kind of mobilized prayer around the world, calling on the church universal to focus on the nations of the earth, did it. And now this text will shed light on that kind of praying. I'm going to read the first five verses of Revelation 8. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to mingle with the prayers of all the saints. Mark that. All the saints, the prayers of all the saints on this altar. Upon the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke 
of the incense rose with the prayers of the saints from the hand of the angel before God. And then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar where the prayers are burning and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder and voices and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. The utterly astonishing thing about this text, I think, is that it portrays the prayers of the saints as the instrument that God uses to bring this age to consummation and fulfill the goal of the Great Commission. The prayers are accumulating from all the saints all around the globe for I don't know how many years, decades, or centuries. They are accumulating on the altar of God before the throne until the appointed time when an angel is called to take a massive censer of fiery prayers and incense from the altar up and to throw it on the earth and cause things to happen at the end of the age. In other words, what I think this text is teaching is that the millions upon millions upon millions of prayers that have gone up from God's people for the last 2,000 years, thy kingdom come. Not one of those prayers prayed in the name of Jesus and in faith has ever been lost and is meaningless. Not one. Every one is accumulating on the altar of God, piling up, being mingled with the worship and the incense of heaven until the appointed time when God will summon Gabriel or Michael or some great angel and say, now gather up these prayers that have assembled before me for 2,000 years and throw them on the earth and give them their appointed answer. That's what this text is saying. And what it does to give significance to your praying that the kingdom come, that his name be hallowed, that his will be done upon the earth, that the, the climax of the ages would come. The significance is just unspeakable. The flame is growing brighter and brighter, evidently, on that altar. The aroma going up into the nostrils of God pleases him tremendously until it gets to the point where he says, now. Now, and he gathers them up and he says, this is what you've prayed for. The old Puritans believed this very strongly as they prayed for the conversion of Israel. I remember reading in uh, Ian Murray's Puritan Hope, which is a great book, uh, how the Puritans believed that every prayer prayed along the lines of Romans 10.1. My heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. He said, every prayer prayed like that has been gathered in a bottle until the time for the removal of the hardening that has come upon Israel has come. And God will take all those prayers and just... So when I read that, I began to pray for Temple Israel. And uh, the rabbi in my town that lives over there that I have breakfast with every couple of months or so, just, Lord, may the time come soon when the bottle is full for the removing of the veil from the eyes of the Jews in Minneapolis. 
and then pour the whole bottle of centuries of praying for the conversion of Israel and let them see their Messiah. Your prayers are not in vain. Your prayers for things are not in vain. You may think they're not coming and they're not being heard. They are not in vain when they are offered in the name of Jesus in faith. So what we have here is that the consummation of history is owing to the supplication of the saints. Consummation owing to supplication. And the eminence given to prayer in this text is almost beyond words. It is an astonishing tribute to the enormous historical importance of praying people and prayer. Now what I want to do is go back and get John's thought here. Because I want you to see this. I'm jumping right in the middle of this most difficult of all books, the one book John Calvin did not write a commentary on. Isn't that correct? Because he didn't know what it was saying and hardly anybody knows what Revelation means. But I did a paper on Revelation in seminary. (laughs) And I developed what I called the doctrine of least meanings. And what I said to Professor Schoenhoven out at Fuller was, I don't know what a vast number of these symbols are referring to or what's going on here. But the least that it means is absolutely awesome. God's going to win. That's the point of the book of Revelation. God's going to win. And there are a lot of other things that you can be sure of. So you don't have to understand the full meaning of a book in order to see dozens and dozens of true meanings that are enough to keep you worshiping and on your face and trembling for the rest of your life. This book is a terrifying book. So here I am dropping you in the middle of it at chapter 8, but I shouldn't do that. So I'm going to back up. We're at the seventh seal, right? In verse 1, well, what in the world are they? What are these seven seals? And when he broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now, to understand where we are and what's going on here, what is this seventh seal, we need to back up about three chapters. So go back with me now to chapter 5, and we'll try to pick it up and see if we can, with the the doctrine of least meanings, if not maximum meanings, uh, agree on some basics in this difficult and complex book. Chapter 5, verse 1. John says, I saw in the right hand, he's just been caught up into heaven, either in the spirit or in body, we don't know. Chapter 4, he's caught up in the spirit, it says, whatever that means, and he's beholding things in heaven that are mind-boggling. And he says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, that's God the Father, a book or a scroll, They didn't have codexes back then yet. So it's a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. Now, what are we looking at here? Dr. Ladd, I can remember at Fuller, Ladd showing us this. He said, now, you all think that the book opens in pieces. You open one seal and you read part of the book. You open another seal and read another part of the book. You open another seal. He said, wrong, wrong, wrong. It's rolled up like this. And, uh, I can't even roll this thing. Okay, it's rolled up like this, and there's seven seals here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And you take one off, and you can't read it. You take another off, and you can't read it. You take another off. It's only when they're all off that you can open the scroll. That's the scene. So you got seven seals closing up this, this scroll here. 
Now, what does that represent? What does the opening of the scroll represent? I think it represents the unfolding of history, especially the latter part of, of history. Chapter 4, the reason I think that is because in chapter 4, verse 1, it says John was caught up in the Spirit in heaven and was promised that he would see, quote, what must take place after this. So he gets there and there's a scroll. So he's promised you will see what must take place after this. And there's a scroll sealed up so he can't see it yet. And he starts to cry. And I think he's crying Verse 2 of chapter 5. Uh, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And uh, nobody at first. Verse 3. No one, under, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And John begins to weep. And his weeping, I think, is, wait a minute, you told me I would be brought up here to see what is to take place hereafter. And now you tell me the seals can't be opened. And so I think this... The, the scroll is what will take place hereafter. What he hoped he would see, what God's purposes and great consummating acts are. And here it remains sealed and he starts to cry. And then verse 5, chapter 5, one of the elders around the throne uh, says to John, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion, that is, of the tribe of the, from the tribe of Judah, that is from the tribe of Judah, Jesus, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I just know, what, what does it mean he has overcome? The Lion of Judah has overcome so as to open the seven seals. And I think the answer of what he's overcome and accomplished is given in verses 9 to 10. They, those around the throne, sang a new song to this lion saying, Worthy art thou to take the book, the scroll, and to break its seals. Now why? Why is he worthy? For thou wast slain and didst purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and thou hast made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. So what he's saying is Jesus has a right to open the seals of history, to unfold history, because he was killed. And in being killed, ransomed the people that will be gathered from all the nations in history. Now there, I'm, there, is, there is stuff going on here that is very, very profound. And I'm sure I don't begin to get to the bottom of it. God is the kind of God, evidently, who as he undertakes to unfold the bloodiest history you will ever know, I mean, the blood that flows in this book, in judgment upon the world, is just unspeakable. And therefore, when he asks, who's worthy to unfold a history like that? His answer is, one who was slain. Thou art worthy, for thou wast slain. The one who has the right to open up a bloodletting history of judgment is one who was judged. One who has given all, 
all, all he could give for the love of the world. There's something going on here about God saying in his judgment, I have made a way out. And I don't send a harsh and unsympathetic high priest to release upon the world this judgments. I send the one who came first not to judge, but that the world through him might be saved. That's the kind of God I am. Don't misunderstand when the blood flows as high as a horse's bridle. It is the one who first died for the sins of his people that is unfolding this history. I just That's not part of my message. That's sort of a parenthesis because when I see it there, I am uh, just blown away by what God wants to communicate about himself in whom he allows to open history and unlock the cross. Here's another way to say it. The cross is the key that unlocks each of these seals. It's like that. He, does, he doesn't open them with a sword. He opens them with the cross. Thou art worthy to open the seals for thou wast slain. The blood opens, the blood of Jesus opens every lock of history and gives meaning to history and is the foundation of what God is doing in history. So Jesus begins to open these seals one at a time. And with the opening of each seal, we don't have the end of the world, I don't think. You have things that lead up toward the end. The end is, this, is what's inside. What uh, Jesus, I think, in Mark 13, 8 calls the beginning of the birth pangs is what you have with the opening of the seals. Here comes one seal, one birth pang. Another seal, another birth pang. The beginnings of the birth pangs of the new world is what you have. Here's what Jesus said. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, and there will also be famines these are merely the beginning of the birth pangs, Mark 13, 8. That's what I think we see as the seals get opened. Let's take them one at a time and just look at them briefly. Seal number one, chapter six, verses one and two. A white horse is seen when the seal is opened, goes forth to conquer. Some commentators say it's the gospel doing conquering work. Others say it's simply symbolic of military conquest. Seal number two, verse four of chapter six, a red horse goes and it stands for war and the taking away of peace and the killing of each other on the earth. Seal number three, verses five and six of chapter six, a black horse stands for famine. A quart of wheat costs a day's wages. Seal number four, verse eight, an ashen horse representing death by pestilence and wild beasts. Seal number 5, verses 9 to 11, you get a glimpse of the souls under the altar, the Christian martyrs crying out for vindication of their deaths and of their blood, which will come very soon. Seal number 6 in verses 12 following bring us to uh, as close to the end as you get in the beginning of the birth pangs. Earthquake, darkened sun, moon and stars falling, Heavens splitting, mountains and islands moving, enemies of God crying out for hiding from the wrath of God in verse 16. And then, before the final seal is opened in chapter 8, 
Well, we'll be in a minute. There are these visions in chapter 7. The first one in verses 1 to 8 of chapter 7 is uh, what, you, what you see is the people of God sealed for protection, sealing them and preserving his own. And then in chapter 7, verses 9 to 17, you see the final triumph, the triumphant state of those people in heaven. So their security upon the earth and their final triumph in heaven. And then we get to chapter 8, verse 1, where we started, the seventh seal, the last one, when the entire scroll will be opened. And before he opens it, or after he opens it, there's silence for half an hour. Let me read that. And when he broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And the next sound that you hear is in verse 5, when peals of thunder and sounds and flashes and lightning and earthquake happen when the fiery prayers are poured out upon the earth. Now, what's the meaning of this silence? <coughs> silence in heaven for half an hour when the seventh seal is broken. Many commentators simply say um, it's significant or symbolic of the dread awe that falls upon the heavenly hosts as they contemplate what is about to be opened in history. They are simply dumbstruck with what is coming in the unfolding of this scroll. But I think there's more to it than that. I think just at this point, God wants to show John something about the role of Christians in the unfolding or the unrolling of the scroll. Up until now, think of this now, up until now in each of the six seals that have been broken, what you have is the awesome, massive, one-sided sovereignty of God sending these horses out and doing these great acts of, of judgment and wrath upon the earth. And so the question that rises is, well, who are we and where are we and what are we doing in all of this stuff? Are we just kind of feathers blowing in the wind of providence? Are we, are we little leaves in sea just going with the tide of sovereignty? Or is there some kind of significant moral, spiritual agency in the church that brings to bear upon history some power? I think this silence is meant to awaken us to what is happening. Let me read you Leon Morris's comment at this point. The saints appear insignificant to men at large, but in the sight of God, they matter. Even great cosmic cataclysms are held back on their account, and the praises of the angels give way to silence so that the saints may be heard. That's Morris's interpretation of the silence. There's silence for half an hour and what your attention is drawn to is the prayers of the saints piling up on the altar. So all heaven becomes silent and all the focus is on the altar and what's gathering is on the altar is the worship by way of incense from heaven and the prayers by way of impact from the earth gathering there and burning and rising into the presence of God. So the silence is not just the dread awe of heaven as what is coming, 
of what's coming. It's also a dramatic presentation of the importance of the prayers of the saints. Before the scroll is open, God wants to make clear to John and to his readers, to us, to you this morning, I think he wants to make clear that the unfolding of the end of history is owing to the prayers of the saints. Look at verse 3. Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer. And much incense was given to him that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints. So I think you've got this heavenly worship added to the prayers of the saints to show that there's a united focus and a united movement in the hearts of heaven and saints on earth. Added to the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. Now notice, it is all the saints. It's not just martyrs. It's not just people in one particular time or location. It is all the saints piling up their prayers upon the altar. So if you wonder, what has become of your prayers for the last decades of your life? The answer is, they are gathering on the altar, those that haven't been answered yet. They're gathering on the altar. If, um, if human beings can invent little microchips, that can hold millions and millions of bytes of information. It's no stress on the mind of God for him to design some memory bank in his altar that keeps a record of every groan of every saint that has ever been uttered at every moment in history since Jesus said, call upon the Lord, or even before Jesus. They're all there. Nothing's been forgotten. Every prayer will have its hour. When the time is right, God does something now with these prayers. He sends an angel, it says, he sends his angel, and uh, they mingle this heavenly incense with the prayers. And then verse 4, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. And then something awesome happens. Causes great historical upheavals with these prayers. Verse 5. The angel took the censer and he filled it with fire from the altar. That is, these burning prayers and burning incense that have been gathering there. He fills them with fiery prayers and he threw it on the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Now those things, thunder, sounds, lightning, earthquake, simply represent the action of God in his sovereign power as he moves to close the age and bring it to consummation and fulfill all the aims of the great commission. And then there are the trumpets and then there are the bowls and all of those are the outpourings of God in response to the prayers of the saints. Now. When I saw this, and I was meditating on this last January and the first week of January, getting ready to preach these things to my church, I thought, this is so awesome, and this book is so fragile in its, in its clarity that I want to make sure that I'm on beam here with some other good thinkers about this, and it's not my idiosyncratic interpretation. So I just read through a half a dozen commentaries, and let me just share with you some amazing statements. Now, I don't... I don't read commentaries very often. I find them boring as all get out. 
I find them very unworshipful. You almost never find in the commentary, unless you go back 300 years, the word O. Why is that? Well, it's because even evangelical scholars have bought into the separation of scholarship and piety. I mean, in Germany, they're real clear about it. We don't pray in class, and we don't... We, we, that piety has nothing to do. I studied three years at the University of Munich, and they were upfront about it. Piety ruins scholarship. So be a scholar, and then at church on Sunday, you can be pious. Evangelicals are not quite as sure, but they still don't say, oh, in their commentaries. <laughs> Even with the most absolutely, stunningly, unspeakably glorious truth, they don't say, oh. It's kind of, well... It is said among other scholars that, and though I find I find them very deadening. I, I, it's very hard for me to work in in commentaries. Though I do, I do. I I know that I have some things to learn from commentaries, and therefore I force myself into them. Well, on this text, I found that several commentators couldn't resist themselves. <laughs> couldn't contain themselves. All right, here is uh, Thomas Torrance being quoted by Leon Morris, you know, Torrance, the Scottish theologian. The fire comes from the very altar on which the prayers of the saints have been offered. This surely means, that's a bold statement, this surely means that the prayers of God's people play a necessary part in ushering in the judgments of God. Amen. Now here, here's the start from Torrance's quote. That was Morris's Torrance. What are the real master powers behind the world? And what are the deeper secrets of our destiny? Here is the astonishing answer. The prayers of the saints and the fire of God. That means that more potent, more powerful, than all the dark and mighty powers let loose in the world, more powerful than anything else, is the power of prayer set ablaze by the fire of God and cast upon the earth. That's right. That's exactly right. More powerful than all political forces, more powerful than all the principalities and powers and these territorial spirits that everybody's talking about these days, more powerful than all of that is the prayers of the saints set ablaze by the fire of God on his altar. Isben Beckwith, that's probably the best scholarly commentary on uh, Revelation in spite of all the contemporary ones that have been written. I still find most linguistic historical help from Beckwith. Here's what he said, and he's no evangelical as far as I know. The events that follow this episode of incense offering as one trumpet after, the, after another sounds are the answer to these prayers of the suffering expectant church. So Beckwith says, as the scroll opens and the bowls and the trumpets are spread out, all of the rest of Revelation and the end of the age and the consummation of the purposes of God are in answer to the prayers of the saints. One more quote from George Ladd. This verse 5 dramatically pictures the fact that it is in answer to the prayers of the saints that God's judgments will fall upon the earth. So I feel justified now. I've got some help from confirmation from these other scholars. It's 
okay, I'm not giving you an idiosyncratic interpretation of this verse. It seems to commend itself across the range of interpreters that those prayers being gathered on that altar are meant by the inspired writer of this book to teach you that every prayer you've ever prayed that God's purposes would be advanced has not been prayed in vain. It is gathering on the altar. It is being set fire to by His holiness. Its aroma is pleasing Him now. And one day when the appointed hour comes, He will have an angel, angel scoop it up and He'll throw it on the earth. And we will know either in heaven or on the earth that our prayers have not been in vain. They will bring the kingdom. They will accomplish His purposes. Let me just close with a couple of practical implications that this has for me and my church and for you and your leadership in your place of ministry. Number one, Jesus said in Luke 18, 1, we ought to always pray and not lose heart. Jesus knew there would be tremendous temptation to lose heart in praying. Why would you lose heart in praying? Because you don't see enough. So you tend to lose heart. This text is designed to help answer that problem. Keep in your mind from this day forward that God, when he hears a believing prayer in the name of Jesus, puts it on an altar and waits. And when the time is right, he gathers it up and he pours it out. Now, I think there's a principle here. Let me, let me risk broadening the implication of this text. I don't think it's a big risk. If this is true, about prayers that are large kingdom prayers, about hallowed be thy name and thy kingdom come and let your will be done. Do it, Lord. And he gathers all those up and in five or 10 or 15 or 20 years or a century from now, pours them out on the earth in great consummating power. If that's true, then I think it's true for a prayer for your church, a prayer for your husband, a prayer for your son that day after day as you pour out your hearts in groanings for a conversion or a healing or something, those prayers are not looked at and tossed in the garbage. They are looked at and laid on the altar. And if you ask, well, what if they aren't answered? I mean, what if they don't get well? My answer to that is taken from Matthew Seven. if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him if your son asks for bread you won't give him a stone if he asks for an egg you won't give him a scorpion but you might not give him bread or an egg you might give him something better that text is very, very helpful. God will give good gifts to those who ask him. One little illustration. I have a son named Benjamin. He's 18 now. When he was about six, maybe, or five, I can't remember, uh, he wanted a snack. And, uh, and I pulled out the cookie box, and he was very expectant. He had asked me, had prayed, and asked me, his father, for a snack. And my heart was benevolent towards my son, and I reached for it, and I opened it, and there was mold all over these favorite cookies. And I took one out, mold, green, fuzzy mold. And he looked at it, 
bright, no problem. <laughs> Icing or something, you know. And, and, and I say, Benjamin, uh, I don't think you should have this. Let's get a cracker. Dad. I want the cookie, Dad. I want the cookie. I said, Benjamin, it's got mold all over it. It's bad for you. He said, I'll eat the fuzz. I'll eat the fuzz. <laughs> well, I did not. I did not give him that cookie. I gave him the cracker because if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father give what's best for you? If you ask for healing, God will work something good, and if the healing doesn't come, it's best for you. It's a gift. It's an answer. It is an answer. And, and, and the prayers, the ten year long, we just lost a man to cancer. One year we, we, we wrestled for his healing. And I think in the last week of his life, God took a year's worth of prayers and poured them all over Rolling Lane. And he died magnificent. Beautifully. Full of faith. And his wife was sustained. And his kids were sustained. And those prayers were not in vain. And he is well today. Yes, there was a no, I won't give you the cookie with the fuzz on it. I'll give you the cracker of death. Died in faith. There are a lot more complex things about prayer, but I don't think any prayer prayed in the name of Jesus is in vain, ever. Our Father is too good to let any prayer be prayed in vain. The last implication, I know I'm over time, is simply join me in 1994 praying through Operation World. Pray for the world this year. And as you pray for the world, just think of your prayers being piled up on the altar. Pray for the opening of North Korea. Pray for the opening of China. Pray for the opening of Cuba. Pray for the coming down of the walls in the Muslim world. Pray for these massive urban centers that have so few Christians, especially in the 1040 window. You know the 1040 window? How many have ever heard of the 1040 window? Well, that's good. I was on the plane. I close with this. I was on the plane. I couldn't believe this. Uh, coming out here, and you know, there's these world these magazines that you get free on the plane, and they, they have the airline routes. Isn't this amazing that I opened the Northwest map? That's incredible. The 1040 window is all desert on this map. Isn't that amazing? That yellow stripe right there? I just That just filled me with with awe that there's a kind of symbol of the 1040 window and his spiritual desolation in the airline magazine. Just open your eyes and pray this year. Pray and pray and may God fill this seminary with a spirit of prayer. Let's pray. Lord, I, I, I praise you that you are a merciful father toward your covenant people. And that as I wanted so bad to do what's good for Benjamin, you love to do what's good for your people. And no prayer is prayed in vain. Not for the coming of the kingdom and the completion of the Great Commission, nor for the healing or the conversion of loved one. You work sovereignly what is absolutely best for your people when they pray. So keep us praying, I ask, in Jesus' name.